The following message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. This message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning worship service. It's a privilege to have one of our own at the pulpit this morning. Derek Greenhouse will be teaching from Romans 8 in a sermon he's entitled, When We Suffer. Let's join Derek now in his message. My name is Derek Greenhalsh, and uh, I've been part of the CBA. I was previously a church planter, and we moved out here about two years ago, and I stepped down from church planting. And I work for O'Neill Clothing now. If you uh, are familiar with O'Neill, I make board shorts for a living. I save lives one board short at a time. And uh, it's a very important job that I have there. Really vain, actually. But uh, anyway, it's fun. I get to travel overseas. And uh, we have summertime Fridays, which means we get off work at 2 p.m. so that we can go to the beach and play around and do things like that. I know, I know, I suffer during summertime. But I do have to drive from Temecula to Irvine every day. So, yeah, ooh, I know, you feel my pain. Thank you. Thank you for the empathy. Let's pray. Father God, we are grateful that we have this opportunity and this time to open up your word. We ask that you would illuminate it to us, that we'd be able to understand the text, and more importantly, God, apply it to our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I went to school at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago as an older student. I was married, and my boys were about two and five years old. I was working part-time as a college pastor at a local church, and Sunday mornings, I would go to church early to help set up and prepare for Sunday service. And I remember one particular Sunday morning, I got up early, I headed out, and when I arrived at the church, I asked our facilities director if he needed any help setting up, if he needed any help preparing for Sunday service. And he said, no, he's got everything under control. So I decided to ask the children's ministry director if she needed any help preparing for the service. So as I headed down the hall, not like two minutes later after speaking to the facilities director, he's running, racing down the hallway back to me, and he says, Derek, Derek, just got a phone call from your wife. Nicole Spencer's had an accident. He's in the hospital. You need to go now. So when I heard that, I bolted. I ran, sprinted out of the church, and headed over to the hospital. And when I arrived, I met my wife in the pediatric intensive care then she proceeded to tell what happened. She said that as they were getting into the minivan to go to church, my older son, my five-year-old, Spencer, was climbing over the middle seat. And as he was climbing over, he lost his grip and fell headfirst and hit the metal bracket that holds the bench seat on the floor below. And immediately he got up, and then he fell down and fainted again. So my wife rushed him to the ER. And at the emergency room... Um, they took pictures of Spencer's brain. And when the doctors were examining these pictures, they discovered a large, dark mass on his brain. And we were told at that moment in time that he had a brain tumor and he'd need surgery. And I remember at that point in time, I began to suffer mental anguish, that my five-year-old son had a tumor and could potentially die. I thought about the surgeries, the treatment, all the pain that this little boy would have to endure and go through. And at that very moment in time, 
I became intimate with suffering. Now, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you suffered lately? Are you suffering now or have you suffered in the past? Have you ever suffered for your faith? Maybe your boss didn't give you the promotion because you're a born-again believer. And it doesn't matter that you've worked there the longest or longer than your co-workers. And it doesn't matter that you're the most qualified person for that job. But because you are outspoken about your faith, you got passed over for that promotion. And as a result, you're known as that religious guy, that crazy Christian, that Jesus freak. And you'll never be promoted. Or maybe your job is in the military And you not only don't get a promotion, but you face a reprimand. Or maybe, just maybe, you've suffered a broken heart because of your spouse. The person, the very person that you committed your life to, has decided that they're no longer happy being married to you. And they've called it quits. They've walked out on you, the kids, and the mortgage. Your family's torn apart, and the life that you knew no longer exists. Or maybe... You're suffering because someone you love has been recently diagnosed with a terminal illness or a life-threatening disease. And the thought of losing that person is just more than you could bear. It's overwhelming. Or maybe you're the one who's been diagnosed with that disease and you're suffering physically, mentally, and emotionally. But I want you to know that if you are suffering this morning, there is hope If you are suffering, there is hope. And we'll see this in the scripture that we're looking at this morning. So if you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, 28. There's nothing or no sweeter sound than the pages of the Bible turning to a preacher. So praise God for that. Romans 8, 28. And this is the Apostle Paul, and this is what he's saying. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined or predetermined to be conformed into the image of His Son. I like that. I think of Ephesians 2 8 through 10, where it says you have been saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, not of yourself, but it's a gift of God. And a lot of people forget to go on in verse 10 and says that you were created for good works. Well, not only were we created for good works, but this particular passage right here tells us that we were called, predestined, predetermined to be conformed into the image of Christ. The whole complete image of Christ. Think that through for a minute. Jesus is also known as the suffering servant. So if he's called the suffering servant and we're called to be conformed into his image, then we too are called to suffer. It's an oxymoron in our culture, I know, especially if you turn on Channel 40 TBN, where you see health, wealth, and and rosy, flowery fields for the rest of your life. That's not it. And it's interesting, too, on this point, I think modern Christendom has been done a disservice with our modern evangelistic means or methods, especially when you hear people sharing the gospel and they start out and they say, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Really? God has a wonderful plan for your life? Tell that to the people 
on 9-10, the day before 9-11, in the Twin Towers, that God has a wonderful plan for their life. They're not going to think that plan is so wonderful. Tell that to Pharaoh before God struck him down with all the plagues and then engulfed him in the, the Red Sea. God has a wonderful plan for his life, but not for your life, but not for everyone. Only for those who love God. And he goes on in the text and he says, for those he also predestined are also called. That's the gospel calling that you and I receive. And those whom he called, he also justified. How did he do that? He did that at Calvary on the cross. He paid for our sins. And for those whom he justified, he also glorified. I love this text. And I will tell you why. Because when I look at this grammatically, in the English, you can figure this out too, but in the Greek it's even more apparent. These verbs are in the aorist tense. Now, Greek has a number of tenses. English, we just have past, present, future. But there's an aorist tense which also conveys the idea of a past tense action. Now, we see this word, or the words um, called, justified, and then glorified. We understand called, that's a past tense action, something God did in the past. He called us before we were born, right? Ephesians 1. And then what did he do? He justified us. He did that on Calvary. That's past tense to us. But yet we come upon this word glorified, and it's like a head scratcher. It's like glorified. Wait, if I understand glorified, that means when I die, I will receive a glorified body, and then I will truly be glorified. But yet, in this passage, Paul's using the past tense. What's up with that? This is what scholars call a prophetic past tense. You see, with God, his word is as good as gold. It's as good as done. So he can say and he could speak in such a way that he could tell the people, the church at Rome, that you are glorified because God said you are and it is a sure thing and it will happen. It's an amazing thing that we see here in this text. So we know that God in his sovereignty will rule over us and that he will fulfill his promises. We are called, we are justified, and we are glorified. Now, the first thing that we need to do to understand this text, and we're going to zoom in on verse 28 specifically this morning, is we have to look at the context of the passage. You have to understand the context so that you can understand the gist of what the author is trying to say. Now, any time you look at the context, it's going to reveal to us the circumstances to which Paul's writing. So if we understand the circumstances, that's going to answer the question of why. So why does he do this? Well, Paul is speaking here to the church at Rome, and they are suffering persecution at the hand of the Roman government. Now, how do we know that they're suffering? Well, the answer, because Paul tells us in verse 16, verse 17, verse 18, verse 26. Look at verse 16. Just draw your eyes. If you've got your Bible open, draw your eyes down from 28 to verse 16. And he says, the Spirit, that's a big S, capital S, the Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit, little s, us, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, underline this, look closely at the text, provided we suffer. I don't want to suffer. Really? I gotta suffer. 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Look at verse um, 18. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this very present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then go down to verse, or move up to verse 26. He says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Why are they weak? Because they're suffering. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, groanings too deep for words. The context tells us the reason why Paul is writing this particular point in this passage is that the church at Rome was suffering. And because they were experiencing suffering, our apostle to the Gentiles wants to give the church at Rome hope and suffering. This is the point. This is the purpose that he's making here in this text. And this is the preaching point that I have for you this morning. When you suffer, take comfort in the sovereignty of God. When you suffer, take comfort in the sovereignty of God. Now let's unpack this. Let's look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, Paul says here in the text that we all know something that will provide comfort in the time of suffering. We all have this knowledge that we will get through the difficult times in life. But what is it that we know? What is this knowledge that you have? We have the knowledge that God is working sometimes together for the good. Does it say some things or... All things, not one or two, not just the good, but all things, all things, all things includes all the good and all the bad. It includes the good circumstances in life, like getting a promotion at work or celebrating your 20th, 30th, 40th wedding anniversary with your spouse to whom you love and you've given your life to. It includes hearing back from the doctor's office that the lab results are in And they're negative and you get a clean bill of health and you wipe the sweat off your brow with a big sigh of relief. But it's not just the good circumstances. It includes the bad circumstances of life as well. Like being overlooked or passed over for that promotion at work. Or having your spouse whom you've loved and you've committed your life to and you exchange those vows walk out on you and the family. And even getting that dreaded phone call from the doctor's office telling you that the lab results are in and it's cancer, and you need to immediately schedule an appointment to come in to see what their next step is. You see, regardless of your circumstances, you need to know that God works through the good and the bad. So number one on your outline, if you have notes, I put an outline in your bulletin there. Number one, know that God is at work. Know that God is at work. I know this seems very elementary, and it seems very simple, but sometimes it's a concept that we have a hard time taking a hold of. Know that God is actively at work in your life. See, the verb in the text that we're looking at here, to work, is actually in the present tense in the Greek. So anytime you have a word in the present tense, it conveys the idea of a continual ongoing action. So it's not something that just happens today, and it's not something that just happens tomorrow, but it happens the day after that, the next week, the next month, the next year. It's a continual ongoing action. 
So what he's telling us here is that when you're suffering, you can know that God is continuing to work in your life regardless of your circumstances. Show of hands, how many of you are familiar with Joseph? Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph, the Technicolor dream coat. Remember that play? They had a Broadway play. I think it did pretty well. Joseph was the 11th son and the favorite son of Jacob. Now, Joseph was 17 years old when his life took a dramatic turn for the worst. You see, he was the family favorite or the father's favorite. And as a result of that favoritism and as a result of uh, Joseph's outspokenness, his uh, brothers didn't like him a whole bunch. So they threw him into a big old pit in the ground and then they were plotting to kill him. Now, imagine, if you will, for a moment that you were Joseph. And you're in that pit and you're listening to your brothers above that are planning on how they're going to kill you. Do they cut his throat? Do they hang him? Do they beat him to death? What is it that they're going to do? But you can imagine the fear that this 17-year-old boy, a high schooler, if you will, had. He was absolutely scared out of his mind. But by God's sovereign grace, they spared his life and he was sold into slavery into Egypt into a foreign country that he didn't know anything about. So that fear didn't diminish. It didn't go away. It was still there because now he left the land that he knew and now he was thrown into a foreign land where he no longer had freedom. But he was sold to a man, a government employee by the name of Potiphar. And Joseph did well. God blessed his work in Potiphar's household and he moved up the corporate ladder and he was doing really, really well. And he was probably thinking, boy, things are looking up. And several years later, when Joseph was in his 20s, Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph because, and I'll put this in the vernacular so that we're perfectly clear about this because the text does, Joseph was the hottest guy around. And I'm not just saying that. Genesis 39, 6 says that he had the perfect face and the perfect body. So Potiphar's wife saw Joseph every day, and one day she saw him in the house, and she tried to have her way with him. And Joseph was like, hey, time out. You know, uh, I'm not going to dishonor God, first and foremost, and I'm not going to dishonor my master, my employer, who has made me head over this household. So, no, lady, I'm not going to do it. So she makes another advance, and Joseph is like, hey, I need to get out of here. So as he turns to run, this desperate housewife grabs his tunic, his clothing, and rips it off him, and he's running out of the house naked. And she's upset. She's like, what? How dare you insult me? You don't want to lie with me? Are you kidding me? You slave, I'm going to tell my husband. And what'd she tell her husband? She said, hey... That Joseph guy that you keep promoting, that you've made in charge over all the stuff in our household, yeah, that guy tried to rape me. And Potiphar was furious. So what happened next? Just when things were starting to look up for Joseph from the pit to Potiphar's house, and he starts getting promoted, things take a turn for the worse. Now he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He did the right thing. He honored God. He said, I'm not going to dishonor God. I'm running away from you. I don't want to sin. And he did the right thing. You think God would honor that and say, oh, Joseph, great job. You've honored me. You've done right. You've done well. So as a result, you'll be free. No, it doesn't work out that way. What happens in the story? 
Joseph enters in prison. He gets thrown into prison. After years of slavery, God doesn't free him, but he's thrown into prison. And we don't know how long he was in prison, but the text says in Genesis 41 that two years after the um, hanging of the chief baker, Pharaoh had a dream. So Joseph was left in prison all that time. So he spent years in jail falsely accused of a crime he didn't commit. If anyone's familiar with suffering, Joseph was. He was rejected and hated by his own family, sold into slavery, accused of rape, and thrown into prison. Thirteen years of this young man's life was held in captivity in a foreign country away from the ones he loved. He was intimate with suffering and pain. And from all external outward appearances, it seemed that God wasn't working in his life at this time. But you know the end of the story. You know that God was working in his life, even though it didn't seem like it. What does Genesis 50, 19 through 20 say? It says this, Joseph can be at the end of his life after he he reveals himself to his brothers and, and they're fearful that he's going to retaliate for the things that they did to him. What does Joseph do? He says, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Just because you can't see God working in your life doesn't mean that he's not working. God is working. And you see, we have this human dilemma that we face as believers. You see, when things are going relatively well in life, what I'd like to call free from physical pain or emotional hurt, then it's easy to see God working in your life. It's like those times when you see a beautiful sunset and everything's calm, the kids aren't fighting in the back seat, and everything's going well. You're thinking, oh God, you are so awesome, you are so wonderful. Or it's like those quiet times when you go up on the hill and the plateau and you're surrounded by creation. It's that whole Romans 1.20 thing where creation's testifying of a creator and you could see God's hand actively working around you in your life. It's easy for us to see God working when things are going well. Or even an example, a good example is this, or, or when a friend or a coworker tells you that you know he's been unemployed for, your, for about the last 12 to 14 months and God has blessed him with a new job and now he's getting paid a little bit more money and not only that, he doesn't have to commute as far so he gets to spend more time with his family. And you're saying, praise God. Praise God he answered your prayers. He's working in your life. You, you can relate to that. You see, but the problem is when you suffer, when you're going through hard times, it's difficult to see God working. As a matter of fact, we have this tendency, we have this propensity to think that God has deserted us or abandoned us. You look hard to see if there's any sign of God working in your life, but you can't see anything except the bad, painful circumstances that are surrounding you. You get laid off from work, your marriage falls apart, your health fails. It seems like no one is there in your deepest and darkest time of need. And you ask the question, God, where are you? And it seems like God's just completely stopped working. He's deserted you. He's abandoning you. But this problem's nothing new. All you have to do is read the Psalms to see that this is a human dilemma that man has faced throughout the centuries. 
Psalm 10, 1, the psalmist says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 44, 24 through 26. Why do you hide your face from me? Why do you forget our affliction, our oppression, our suffering? For our soul is bowed down to dust, our bellies cling to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. You are not alone when you think this way in times of trouble. Even the prophets themselves had a hard time seeing God's hand working in their life when they were suffering and experiencing difficult times. But God has not abandoned you. God has not abandoned you. He's not left you alone. He's not removed from creation, but he's actively involved in it. The subpoint A on your outline, know he is working for the good of his people. Know that he, I keep turning back, it's right in front of me. Know that he is working for the good of his people, for those who love God. Look at the text in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, who are they who love God, his people, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's two things that I want to point out in this text. First, the good that God is working out is only exclusively for believers. This promise in Scripture is not for everyone. This is not an exclusive promise, or I mean an inclusive promise. It's exclusive. If your parents or friends are not saved, then this promise is not meant for them. It's only for those who love God, only for those who are truly called. The second thing that I want to point out about this text is you need to know that God is working everything out for your eternal good. Not necessarily your temporal good. You see, when you're suffering, it is imperative that you make the distinction between God working all things out for your eternal good as opposed to your material good. Sometimes these two are diametrically opposed. Sometimes they meet. This verse is not a proof text that everything will turn out okay in this life. This text doesn't mean that this will work out for your material good. I have heard believers say to a fellow believer when they're suffering, when they're hurting, hey, brother, it will be okay because God works everything out for those who love him. Well, think about his circumstances. Maybe you've had a brother who tried to uh, get into Harvard and he was rejected from Harvard. Or maybe you have a friend, a young female who was engaged to a godly man, and this godly man broke off the engagement. And you might be tempted to say, well, it's okay, God has a better school for you to go to, really, than Harvard if you're studying law? Or God has a better fiancé for you, really? This guy was a godly man. You might not have a better fiancé, and you might not ever get married. So don't make promises that the text doesn't claim. Don't do that. You have to be careful. But know this, don't misapply the text, but know this, that everything will work out for your ultimate good. It might not happen in this life, but I can guarantee you it will happen in the next. You see, when you suffer loss, you need to know that everything will work out for your ultimate eternal good. Turn to Job, if you will. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. If you go to Psalms, go back left one book to Job. Look at Job chapter one. Job chapter one. Look what Job says. He's just lost his finances. Okay, you know the story of Job. You cannot talk about suffering without mentioning Job. Job lost all of his finances. That big old bank account, that savings account that he had was in the form of livestock that he kept on the hills. And what happened? Foreigners came in and raided and took his savings account. They robbed his bank account, took every penny away from him. And he lost his finances, but he also lost his family. His ten kids were killed. And what does Job say in Job 1, 20 and 22? He says this, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. <laughs> it's amazing. We, we don't like to read this. I mean, how can Job say that? God is good and he's blessed me with all this stuff. God is good and he's taken everything away from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is supernatural. This is a man who loves God, but he's still a man. You know, what's interesting, too. He had a wonderful wife, right? He did. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 7. This is not a Proverbs 31 woman. Verse 7, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Sores, scabs. I mean, get the visual. Well, maybe not. And then, what did he do? He took a piece of broken pottery which to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. That's a great visual picture, isn't it? You want to see someone who's suffering. He's lost his finances. He's lost his family. Now he has lost his health. And then his wonderful, encouraging, God-fearing wife comes up to him and says, Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Oh, thank you. But he said to her, You speak as a foolish woman would speak. Shall I receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Do you see that? Job got it that God was working out all things, the good and the bad. He accepted that. He received that. And that changed his demeanor, his outlook. And he had hope. It's an amazing thing. He had hope. But it's difficult for us to go through painful times. And we have a hard time understanding why God can allow good people. Okay, not good people because we know the gospel. We know that no one's good. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So, not good people. But God can allow His people to suffer while these evildoers, these wretched non-believers, are prospering. 
How can that be, God? I do everything right. I go to church every Sunday. I'm involved in midweek study. I go to Pastor Matt's Bible study Wednesday night. I go to Joyce's Bible study. I go to all these other youth group events. I'm involved in Sunday school. I tithe. I even wear my name tag. But yet, why? They're blaspheming you, God. They're using your name as a curse word. They mock you. They scorn you. They ridicule you. And they're prospering. They're getting promoted and I'm not. Do you see the inequity? Have you ever felt that way? Now be honest, you're in church. Have you ever felt that way? Yes. There's been times in your life where you felt that way. And again, you're not alone. This is another human dilemma that mankind has faced throughout the centuries. Psalm 73, 3-5 says this, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. And their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not ill. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken down like the rest of mankind. Why, God? Why? You see, when you're experiencing suffering and pain, and you see wicked people prospering and getting promotions, you think, God, it's not fair. It's not fair. Why? You know what? It's because you and I have bought into that false assumption about being a a Christian. We've bought in this false assumption about our relationship with God because we thought or we were told when someone showed the gospel with us, that remember God had this wonderful plan for our lives and everything will be good? Really? Well, that's not true. There's no guarantee in life that you aren't going to suffer. And we saw earlier in the text in our study that if you are a born-again believer, that you have been appointed to be conformed to the image of God. That means you too will be like the suffering servant. Philippians 1, 29 through 30 says this, For it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him. I have this little pet peeve because I'm a Greek geek. And it's every time I see the word believe in the English version, it's in the modern definition, it's lost its true meaning. Okay, If you look back in Webster's Dictionary about 200 years ago, it means something completely different than what it means today. Today, when you see the word believe in the English dictionary, it'll mean to or it'll define itself as taking something true or real. To believe something is to accept something as true or real, right? It's intellectual assent. But in the Greek, it actually comes from the word pistis or pistou, and it has the idea of transferring trust. So when you believe in God, you're not just mentally assenting to some facts about who he is, but you're trusting in who that person is. You're trusting that Jesus is who he says. So it says in this text that we should not only believe or that we should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you see that in the text? Paul is telling the church at Philippi that you too should suffer as Christ did engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul was familiar with suffering. And he talks about it to his young apprentice, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 11. He says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Verse 11. And my persecutions and sufferings. 
that happened to me at Antioch, Iconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and Galatia. That's where Paul was stoned. Some commentators believe that he actually died when he was stoned and came back to life. We don't know, but it could have happened. These are the persecutions which I endured, yet from them the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Sign me up for Christianity. Yay, I want to be persecuted. You know what? It's not fun. Persecution's not fun. But it changes us. God uses it as a major tool and instrument in our life to conform us to be more like Him. And it's painful, like a sculptor chipping away at the rock. But when God's done, your life will be so much better because you will be conformed to the image of Christ. And better in the godly, eternal way. Not this man-centered thinking, material, you know, promotions. God has called us to suffer. And God will work through everything. The good and the bad for your eternal benefit. The third point and last point that I'm making this morning is this. You need to know he's working out his plan. In the text, we can identify that when he uses the word purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You see, God's working out his plan according to his purpose. Remember, I'm a grammar geek. I like looking at grammar. We have a pronoun here, his. It's a possessive pronoun. That means it is the antecedent to his. The personal pronoun is God. So it's God's plan. It's God's plan, not your plan. Your plans will fail. Start a business. It could potentially fail. Earn a college degree. You might have a career that is something has nothing to do with the discipline that you studied at school or plan to get married so long as you both shall live. It may not happen. Our plans fail, but God's plan never fails. Your plans may never get off the ground, but God's plans always come true fruition. You see, the problem is that we want everything to work out according to our plan. And when life throws you a curveball, you get upset, you start questioning God, and even sometimes you blame Him for the bad choices that you have made. I got a question for you. If Joseph was able to make his own plans, knowing that he would become the prime minister of Egypt, what would they look like? What would his plans look like? Would it include being kicked out of your family and shipped off to a foreign country? Would it include losing your freedom and becoming a slave for 11 years? Would it include being thrown into prison for something that you didn't do? I think if Joseph had planned it, and not God, if it was Joseph's plan opposed to God's plan, it would look completely different. I think he would have hired the best teachers of the land and got the best education money could buy. And upon graduating, Joseph would take over his father's business and his brothers would work for him. And he'd expand that business and take it global. He'd open an office and distribution center in Egypt. And then when he's had enough experience in international business, he would be ready for his political career as prime minister of Egypt. But that's not what God had for him. God knew that Joseph needed to be changed. He needed to be transformed to the image of Christ. 
So he put him through these times of suffering. For three months and for three different doctors, I was told my son had a brain tumor. I was told that he'd have to go undergo brain surgery to remove the ter- tumor. And then finally, after three long, long months, we had our appointment with the pediatric brain surgeon in downtown Chicago at Children's Hospital. And once we arrived, we carried this cart of x-rays with us. We got to his office. He grabbed the x-rays. He proceeded to put them up on the wall. He said, okay, don't, don't tell me anything. Just wait. Let me make my own diagnosis first. So as he's looking at the x-rays, he's going through 50 of them. He's studying them, and he's got his arms folded and his finger hitting his lip. And as he goes through, it seemed like an eternity. And he gets through to the last x-ray, and he says, okay, now you tell me what happened or what, what the diagnosis is from the other doctors. And I proceeded to tell this um, brain surgeon that... Uh, Yeah, I was told from all the other doctors that my son has a brain tumor and that he would need surgery. He said, I am so sorry. He says, your son does not have a brain tumor, praise God. He said, what happens sometimes to many people, and it's actually quite common, is that when the brain forms, he has what we call an asymmetrical ventricle. So usually as the brain is forming, the ventricles, which allow fluid to cushion the brain, form equally on both sides. Well, Spencer just had one ventricle on the right side and didn't have it on the left. And he said, he's perfectly fine. Don't take him. No more x-rays. No more CT scans. Not another picture. Have a wonderful life. And I remember the sigh of relief. We were prepared. We were prepared. We were already suffering. And we were completely prepared to go through with this brain surgery at this point in time. But by God's grace, we didn't have to. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those people in our congregation here at RBC who are suffering right now and those who will be suffering in the future that you would help them to understand that there's hope in the midst of suffering. There's hope in your word. And help them to be strong and bring those around them to comfort them. And I pray, God, that you would prepare them for that and help them to embrace the change that you want to see happen in their lives. Lord, we thank you that we have hope above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. If you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org Have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.